This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. It's a huge pleasure and honor uh, to be introducing Marina Warner today, welcoming her back to Stanford, uh, though I confess to finding the task a bit daunting. Uh, she seems to write with more ease and celerity that many of us uh, can read. Uh, so fast, indeed, that neither her own website or her own CV, it seems, can keep up with her. As I trawled up and down the mystic staircases of the Borgesian Library of Babel that is the land of Google, I kept finding new marina items unlisted elsewhere. I thus make no claim for encyclopedic completeness in this short summary of her accomplishments. How indeed to summarize a literary, artistic, and scholarly career that has encompassed so much or dealt so richly with so many topics and themes. How to enumerate the novels, short stories, essays, prefaces, film scripts, opera libretti, broadcasting projects, art writing, curating ventures, and the like how to take full account in a few minutes of her extraordinary polymathic works of cultural history, uh, those uh, scholarly blockbusters that she began publishing in the 1980s, works like Alone of All Her Sex, The Myth of the Virgin Mary, Joan of Arc, The Image of Female Heroism, From the Beast to the Blonde on Fairy Tales and Their Tellers, or No Go the Bogeyman on Scaring, Lulling, and Making Mock, uh, and Phantasmagoria, Spirit Visions, Metaphors, and Meanings. To borrow one of her own uh, profound and, I think, magical keywords, such a scholarly uh, accomplishments have established her as one of the great mythographers of our time. In search of an appropriate and capacious enough symbolic system with which to describe Marina Warner, I found myself turning uh, to a work that has in fact given me a lot of information about everyday life and that indeed seems to have been written with Marina in mind, namely Cesare Ripa's renowned iconic Chronologia of 1593. Cesare Ripa was a late 16th and early 17th century Renaissance humanist, a learned commentator, a student and compiler of occult wisdom, sort of the Marina Warner of his day. Iconologia is what is known as an emblem book, a sort of pictorial dictionary in which Ripa lists in alphabetical order uh, roughly 700 moral and philosophical concepts and explains the iconography, the conventional personifications and visual symbols that should be used to represent them. His book became a great source for European painters from the 17th century on. And we indeed are still familiar with some of Ripa's emblems. The goddess Justice, for example, who is blindfolded and holds up a scale. Or Peace, another beautiful woman holding an olive branch. Marina Warner has herself written about Ripa and other Renaissance emblem books. Notably in Monuments and Maidens, the allegory of the female form. But also in fascinating essays. There are uh, two essays in particular on women photographers, the society photographer of the 1930s, Madame Yevand, who did a series of um, sort of costume photographs called the goddess uh, photographs, and Megan Jenkins, a New Zealand artist who's made a number, a series of neo-surrealist photo collages uh, that she calls the virtues, allegorical female figures for a disenchanted, denatured modern world. It turned out that there were indeed quite a few Ripon emblems that seemed to signify the multitudinousness of Marina, including, no surprise here, the first one in the book, 
abondanza, meaning plenty or plenitude. The symbol of abundance, according to Ripa, is, quote, a beautiful woman crowned with a garland in a green gown embroidered with a cornucopia in her hand. She is no less amiable for her beauty than her contrary, want, is deformed and odious. The garland denotes cheerfulness and the mirth that do inseparable inseparably accompany her. The cornucopia is an emblem of the affluence of all things necessary to human life, unquote. In other words, as my students have all started saying, and not just the Australian ones, no worries. The reaping emblem of plenitude seems perfect after all for someone who by my own rough count has written six novels including uh, the prize-winning The Lost Father of 1987, four books of short stories, five children's books, and 10, or is it 11, of the aforementioned books of cultural history, and scores of literary and critical essays on everybody and everything, from Cristan de Pizan, Ovid, the Arabian Nights, so-called old wives' tales, the writings of Charles and Mary Lamb, to the artists Fuseli, Leonora Carrington, and Kiki Smith, to Leda and the Swan, the photo novels of W.G. Zaywald, ectoplasm and spirit photography. But other reaping figures would also seem to be appropriate if also at times slightly sexist. Academia, for example, a lady of manly heroic aspect, having a crown of gold, a party-colored garment, a file in her right hand and a garland in her left. Her masculine countenance denotes solid and profound judgment. The crown of pure gold, the refining of notions by experiment, the various colors, the variety of sciences in an academy, the file, the polishing of pieces and freeing them from superfluities, the garland, honor to those who excel. Academia's heroic aspect, the big file, uh, possibly a hermetic renaissance allusion to a gigantic Microsoft Word file, and the garlanding is more than fit. Marina Warner has received a host of academic prizes, a true cornucopia visiting lectureships, a veritable magic sack of honorary degrees from universities all over the world. She's a fellow of the Royal Society, of literature, a chevalier de l'ordre des arts et des lettres, a fellow of the British Academy, the winner of the Catherine Briggs uh, Memorial Prize, the Mythopoetic Scholarship Award, and has been an honorary fellow at both Lady Margaret Hall, the Oxford College at which she received her BA in Modern Languages in the 1960s, and All Souls. She's also held numerous research and teaching posts, She's been a Getty Scholar at the Getty Center for the History of Art and the Humanities, visiting fellow at the British Film Institute, visiting professor of women's studies, University of Ulster, a visiting fellow at the Italian Academy at Columbia. And since 2004, she's been a professor in the Department of Literature, Film, and Theater Studies at the University of Essex. Now, I must confess that I had to reject several reaping emblems that I initially thought might be appropriate. Curiosita, or curiosity, for instance. Now, intellectual curiosity has no doubt been one of the driving forces of Marina's life and work, a curiosity about past and present, the relationships between the arts, the synergy between words and pictures, art and life, the conscious and the unconscious, the seen and the unseen, the child world and the adult world. But I have to say that the somewhat unpleasant rendering of curiosity in Ripa, especially with regard to costume and personal grooming, seem more like a description of me than of Marina. She has abundance of ears and frogs on her robe. 
Her hair stands up on end, wings on her shoulder, her arms lifted up. She thrusts out her head in a prying posture. The ears denote the itch of knowing more than concerns her. The frogs are emblems of inquisitiveness by reason of their goggle eyes. The other things denote her running up and down to hear and to see, as some do after the news. Nor though, nor though Marina has given countless lectures and talks all over the world, from Japan to the West Indies, Norway to Australia, did the reap an emblem for loquacity exactly bring an accurate or pleasing image to mind. A young woman woman gaping in a habit of changeable taffety with crickets and tongues, a swallow on the crown of her head going to chirp, and a magpie and a duck. The magpie denotes prating that offends the ears, the tongues also, too much talkativeness. The swallow on her head, that prating that disturbs the head of the quiet, studious person. The duck at her feet likewise denotes too much talkativeness. Repa doesn't ever want you to miss the point. No, it seems best to stick with some of the safer, more mainstream emblem ladies, philosophia, intelligentsia, sapienza, or wisdom, a maid in the obscurity of night holding a lighted lamp in one hand and a great book in the other, reason, armed like Pallas Athena, prudence, who is always accompanied by a stag, chewing to show us that we should ruminate before resolving a thing, says Ripa. One would also want to add in patience, felicity, generosity, seraphic love, agriculture, diligence, digestion, possibly even modest bashfulness, Quote, a modest, sweet-looking girl casting down her eyes, clad in red, cherry-cheeked, an elephant's head for her headdress and a falcon in her right hand. The cheeks and gown denote blushing, the elephant bashfulness because elephants seek privacy in the venereal act. And the falcon, <laughs> modesty, for if it fail to catch its prey, it is so ashamed that it can scarce be reclaimed to the fist. How I wish I myself had an elephant's head for my headdress like Marina, and how admirable indeed to seek privacy in the venereal act. At the same time, I realize finally that no single emblem can possibly encapsulate all of Marina Warner's accomplishments. She is herself too polymorphous for that, a bold and protean guide into the labyrinthine psychic and cultural past, an Ariadne for a muddled post-mythological age, the hippest of hipster antiquarians. As her novels, essays, and historical works make clear, she is an imaginist of huge distinction, a maker and remaker of necessary tales. A nonce word popped into my head as I thought about her today. She is a story keeper. She keeps stories alive for us, as a zookeeper might care for his animals, but without the condescension, curtailment, or species arrogance that the business of zookeeping might seem to entail. The stories are not always soothing or pacifying ones, just as the polar bears and tigers occasionally turn on those who would feed them or even just wave their hands at them, Marina Warner's discussions of fairy tales, superstitions, the psycho psychopathological dimension of folklore at times take us into a brutal and bloodthirsty realm, the world of the shadow self, the world of nightmare. But as with Freud's forays into this same dark place. The work of Marina Warner is enlightening, enthralling, and at times peculiarly consoling. Today she will give us part of one of those stories, the voice of the toy, writing magic and enchanted states. Please welcome Marina. Well, Terry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. Thank you very, very much. It was ex 
<laughs> it's very generous of you. Um, and John Bender, too, thank you very much for inviting me and all of you for coming. Um, in one of the early tales told by Scheherazade over a thousand and one nights, a doctor called Duban arrives at court from another country and cures a Greek king of leprosy without recourse to magic or trickery, but through a simple traditional remedy, fresh air and vigorous exercise. This is the stranger's magic, his practical intelligence, what the Greeks called metis. But the king's vizier becomes envious, as viziers do, and fearful of losing his own influence over his ruler, he slanders the doctor who cured the king and eventually succeeds in turning him against, against the king until with the extremes of passion and arbitrary cruelty frequent in the Thousand and One Nights, the king decrees the death of Duban, the physician. On the block, Duban pleads for justice, as do many of the courtiers at his execution. But when the Grecian king remains stubbornly blinded by all the lies he's been told, Duban divulges that he possesses a magic book containing knowledge of all kinds, and that in particular, on a certain page of this book, and he gives the king chapter and verse, there is a spell so powerful that when his head has been cut off, it will answer any question the king puts to it. The king's curiosity is fired up, and he orders the book to be brought to him. When Duban is beheaded, the head placed in a basin and set before the king. The head opens its eyes and asks the king to start reading. He opens the book and turns the pages to find the place where the spell will turn the key to secrets only the dead can know. But the pages are stuck together, and so he licks his finger to ease turning them. This is Kai Nielsen's illustration from the 1918-1922 um, version of the Arabian Nights. The king finds nothing written on the pages. Turn over some more leaves, says the head. The king does so, and he's taken by a terrible fit, his eyes blinded, his mouth foaming, and he falls down in his death throes, for Duban has poisoned the book. The tale of the physician Duban is one of the greatest parables about the power of literature. Scheherazade is telling stories to reinstate clarity in the enraged king's mind, the sultan's mind, and bring back justice. The story of the Dr. Duban is one of a cluster of tales embedded within the tales of the Thousand One Nights that she tells, which reveal, among many other things, the terminal danger of mental blindness, injustice, and despotism. This is the um, from Lane's uh, later trans uh, 1830s um, version. Like the framed story in which Scheherazade pleads for her reprieve and for the salvation of all women, the, the story of the wronged doctor dramatizes the active power of storytelling and animates a book as his avenger. The severed head of the physician Duban and his instrument belong in a debatable land, a person who is not a person, a thing that is not quite a thing, or perhaps a very special kind of thing, a severed head that speaks, a book that kills. This type of dead live thing infuses its baneful energy into many of the stories in the nights. In this talk, I'll explore the kinetic, animate, speaking environment of the book and offer a taxonomy of liminal things where animate and inanimate mingle and morph. I'll focus above all on things that talk and move and have consciousness and identity in a cycle of stories that's played a key part in the development of this strand in the Western imaginary. The Thousand and One Nights offers, I believe, an intermediate category of being that exemplifies magic as metaphor in action, as language becoming act. I'll propose that the dominant way of endowing objects with life and discovering efficient powers in inanimate things proceeds by analogy with children's games, in which the playing child gives voice to the toy. I'll pause on talismans in particular as a special class of active thing, and I'll then explore ways of playing in the literature of imagination. The flying carpet will become the hero of this story, a very special example of fantasy as realizable prophecy. One of the most original animators working today, the Czech surrealist artist and filmmaker Jan Schwenkmeyer, has issued a command, an instruction. Animation is a magical act awakening inert things to life, Try to comprehend their inner life. Objects, particularly old ones, have witnessed all sorts of events and lives, 
First become a collector of old things. Listen to them. Never do violence to objects. Tell their stories. With regard to listening to stories of magic lamps and flying carpets, and consequently with regard to the function of imagination and its creative powers today, the questions are, however, changing. No longer doing the individual dream work of the couch, what scenes does make-believe stage, or what stories does the unconscious relate. Curiosity is changing direction and asking instead, what do these things or objects, these toys and talismans, tell us not about ourselves but about themselves? In listening to the thing that talks through the voice of the toy, they can become eloquent as vehicles of futurity, time machines of innovation, not of retrospection or preservation, but rather agents of prophetic science. Walter Benjamin writes in a notebook, when something inanimate returns our glance with its own, we are drawn initially into the distance. Its glance is dreaming. It draws us after its dream. The flying carpet acts as chief witness to the role of dream, fantasy, and fairy tale in the invention of modern flight, itself the realization of the narrative genre itself, especially in its cinematic and cybernetic incarnations, where the concept of a flying carpet has peculiar aptness and where a new condition of reality continues to be forged and inert matter comes to life and speaks. And you know well at least two places where such stories can be heard and carpets have special powers to transport their charges on wonderful voyages. In The Thousand and One Nights, as in this recent film, and in Freud's consulting room, first in Vienna and then in London, where the talking cure was first practiced. The magic carpet, the last of the sentient toys that we'll listen to tonight, brings us to the principle underlying the relation between toys and ourselves, pleasure in performance and play. So first to the world of the nights. The Thousand and One Nights includes a teeming throng of enchanted things. Not only magic lamps, but animate stones, statues, toys, weapons, and other devices as well as talismans. The book presents a cornucopia of objects manipulated by human agency on the one hand, and empowered with mastery over them on the other. Soaked in individual fantasy, these enchanted things in the nights ignite and speak, move and grow, pulse and radiate, displaying sentience and expressing feelings and developing attachments to their owners. All of these signs of consciousness, or qualia, even though to say that things have qualia forms a contradiction in terms. This quickening can then develop beyond the projective subjectivity of the thing's users, and things acquire a life of their own, a concealed but conscious, unfathomable existence. Many of the stories in the nights produce jinns or demons who explode in all their enraged potency from magic vessels and instruments. The famous lamp contains an all-powerful genie who can transform Aladdin into a fabulously wealthy prince and win him marriage to the princess. But other common furnishings and household goods, jewels and costly wares supply the vehicles of magic in the nights and the favorite lairs in which jinns lurk. In the first story cycle of the book, a merchant chucks a date pit from his wallet on the path as he rides by, and he accidentally hits the son of a genie, invisible, and kills him. The enraged father rises in all his colossal terror to avenge the son's death. This episode made a lasting impression on the young Coleridge's imagination, so much so that he tells us his father burned his copy of the Knights uh, to avoid stimulating, overstimulating his young mind. In the subsequent tales that the merchant then tells to ransom his life from the jinn's revenge, a fisherman describes how a terrifying afrit, or another demon, um, another word for a demon in the book, swarmed out of a bottle he had caught in his nets from the bottom of the sea. And this is a fearsome apparition. All these engravings are from William Harvey's 1830s edition. The genie then tells his story. King Solomon, in his wisdom, overcame all the rebellious demons who'd refused to convert to Islam and trapped them in copper flasks, which he sealed with lead and cast into the bottom of the sea. It is one of these that the fisherman has fished up. Now, some of you will know this story from reading it, but others from Robin Williams's exuberant ventriloquy as the genie in the Disney Aladdin. And you all know how the genie was then tricked back into the bottle. Several tales in the nights probe the threshold existence of something that is not quite either or, human or thing, but both and, as in the case of the tale of the physician Duban earlier. 
In the story of the King of the Black Isles or the ensorcelled prince, for example, the hero has been half turned to stone by his wife, a powerful sorceress who lives immured underground where she torments him daily. Cunning artifacts, automata, trinkets, toys, also spring into autonomous life. The tale of the magic ebony horse, one of the most loved stories of pure fairy tale enchantment in the book, features a Persian magus and a wonderful flying machine in the form of a horse. The Persian says, when it is mounted, it carries his rider through the air with the speed of light, taking him wheresoever he would go and covering in a day the year's journey of a horse of flesh and blood. It carries off the princess's brother far away to the islands of Wakwak, where the trees bear heads that speak and cry out, Wakwak. This is Edmund Dulac's illustration, 1903. When released, jinns speak, chiefly of forbidden knowledge, since they originate in heterodox, specifically non-Muslim belief. Most of the Magi are cast as Zoroastrians or ancient Persian fire worshippers, and the Afrits are often diabolical and need to be quelled by heroic princesses. But in many more stories, to hear is to obey, and once released from captivity, the jinns magically transport the story's heroes and heroines across great distances and offer them a vantage point of dream, power, and knowledge, not unlike the world unfurled under Jesus' eyes by another jinn in the New Testament when he is tempted in the desert. The mercantile society evoked in the nights, the many tales of buried treasure, the book's population of sailors, beggars, traders, shopkeepers, craftsmen, and every kind of shopping and shopping going on, gives goods, artifacts of every sort, utensils, bibelots, and toys, an independent presence and vitality. This animist narrative does not only dramatize supernatural interventions, it perceives the wayward powers of goods in themselves in exchange, what has been called the tournament of goods. It, um, and it explores prophetically through a myriad stories the spell they cast on us, on people. Frequently, the more banal and quotidian the vessel, the more grimy and dilapidated it is, the closer it has moved to the condition of pure rubbish, worthy only of discarding, the more dramatic and exciting the sudden apparition of its indwelling personal demon who spirals out of his prison with a great groan. This active animation of the entire material paraphernalia surrounding human existence does not observe distinctions between organic and inorganic matter. Indeed, there is no stable order of the inorganic, and if anything, manufactured goods from metals or gemstones have the edge in terms of numbers of appearances over characters who are imprisoned in stones or trees or animal shapes. In the night's Artificialia, made in organic goods, surpass naturalia, or organic matter in magical energy. Manufacturers, as loci of true stories and translated selves, possess the inherent power of magnets and foreshadow the eerie liminal life of new forms of cyber existence. Interest in such liminal things, suspended between animation and deadness, objectivity and subjectivity, posit posits a vitality in matter that breaks with the conventional definitions of sentience. This sense has now spread beyond childhood and beyond the playroom and wrapped us in a familiar but new category of supernatural, the digital uncanny. The French poet Paul Valéry noticed the phenomenon when he commented, what is most subjective of all, feeling, le sentiment, has infiltrated itself into what is most objective, the photographic image, a machine. Machines in the form of electronics have altered consciousness itself. Sherry Turkle has explored how computers have become, quote, ever more intimate partners to their users, more like thought prosthetics than simple tools. The effect on memory has been the most obvious impact, and it illuminates the importance of things' different relationship to time. But by contrast, since the coming of computer-generated simulation, the internet and virtual reality, the thing world has become rich in different kinds of animate things which propel time present forwards into the future, not the past. So I'm now going to whirl us through a few categories of things, just very quickly to give you an impression of this landscape of the thing world. There's a word vesh in Russian, which implies, I've been told, I don't know Russian, a thing with a soul, by contrast to the word for an object, predmet. 
The contrast reflects to some extent the implied difference in English between a thing and an object, where an object can be more thing-like than a thing, but you would never call a friend, you dear old object, <laughs> nor would you say anything other than I've a thing for Johnny Depp. Things with soul enfold relics and souvenirs, keepsakes, memorabilia, and fetishes, and depend on the thought that a thing fallen out of signification creates a break in the network of connections with others and oneself. This conceptual understanding in a Russian context came home to me when I visited the house where the writer Mikhail Bulgakov lived in Kiev in the Ukraine. The small museum, lovingly kept by an enthusiastic curator, has gradually identified and assembled a few things, a hat, a pen, a piano, some snapshots, a few manuscripts and notebooks that Bulgakov and his family used. Other miscellaneous from the period in the milieu have been added to furnish the apartment in an atmospheric way. But anything that has not, did not belong to the writer or his family or, been in, or not been in contact with him has been painted white. These elements in the display remain mere predmeti, objects, and stand blanched and leached of body and being to show that they have not been imbued with soul by contact with the subject, with Bulgakov himself. <coughs> Many other things besides personal relics are or can be ensouled. The photograph, the model, the mold, the cast, the doll, the puppet, the toy. I'm not even going to pause to consider here things that are consecrated through religious ritual. Relics also arise in purely secular context and can lead us to understand a category of things that are enchanted independently of belief in a deity. For example, the writer W.J. Sebalt, whom Terry mentioned, introduces into his no memoir novel, The Rings of Saturn, nondescript, blurry, uh, black and white photographs. But when he identifies this rucksack as belonging to the philosopher Wittgenstein, it then fills with significance, elegiac, reverential. It acquires a kind of sacred status. The concept of the fetish also hovers here, an ordinary object such as a glove, Nadia's from André Breton's surrealist novel, become transfigured by special and particular attachments. Alongside such charged entities, amulets and charms form another class of magical enchanted thing, but impersonal rather than personal. They exercise efficient prophylactic and other powers to do harm as well as offer protection. After performative processes have released the object's active energy, as in the case of this wax figure of an unfortunate Chinese victim stuck with dressmaker pins or this lemon stuck with 24 clout-headed nails and six wire-headed nails in order to bring about the death of an English greengrocer in Naples in 1891. <laughs> the catalogue entry for this lemon reads, it was found at the top of some window furniture during spring cleaning, and its import was at once recognised by the servants who refused to stay in the house with it and were terrified. The depositor, Eustace Neville Rolfe, reported that he had an old cook to whom he showed the lemon later to ask him what it might be, whereupon he faced a walkout by his staff. The ethnographical sections of museums, such as the Pitt Rivers in Oxford, where both these charged and unholy things are kept, are likely resting places of such materials, while the consecrated paraphernalia of Christianity, Islam, and other living religions with a global reach are usually found in the historic or fine art sections. But enchantment today spills over from belief, superstition, towards a wider sweep of regions inhabited by non-believers. Magic materializes in new ways. Anthropology on the one hand and psychology on the other have richly illuminated the narrowness of former positivist interpretations which repudiate the irrational. As Lorraine Daston has commented, as seeds around which an elaborate crystal can suddenly congeal, things in a supersaturated cultural solution can crystallize ways of thinking, feeling, and acting. These thickenings of significance are one way that things can be made to talk. Sebald listens out for these meanings with exceptional, even morbid sensitivity. He writes about, quote, the autonomous existence of things to which, like blindly furious working animals, we stand in a dependent and subordinate relationship. He attributes this to their power over our memories 
and continues, because in principle things outlast us. They know more about us than we know about them. They carry the experiences they have had with us inside them and are, in fact, the book of our history opened before us. Sebald's exorcisms of muteness represent a new contemporary understanding of the secret life of things. His use of dim, gray, enigmatic photographs of evocative objects, such as these billiard balls, which seem to look back at us, or Wittgenstein's rucksack, contributes to the troubling reality effect of his erratic meditations on memory, identity, and time. Like Benjamin, he postulates the returning glance of inanimate things. The face of a tease maid, which is a kind of clock and a kettle combined, in a bed and breakfast in England in the 50s. Such contemporary recourse to animism presses beyond earlier ideas about magic or aesthetics. But this elegiac Sibaldian evocation of things, stranded in stasis of time past, only glances at the dynamic metamorphoses wrought by things upon us now. We are now experiencing a new turning when the time captured by things looks towards the future, not the past, and consequently a different and less melancholic vision comes into focus. Playing is key to this change of temporal relation. A toy is above all a plaything, and playthings take part in stories, stories scripted, quoted, and enacted by the player or players, which do not repeat experiences only, but shape its possibilities through fantasy. The word toy implies a model, usually in miniature, such, and as scale reductions, toys belong to another set of things or goods, namely copies, replicas, and simulacra, a meta-set of objects existing in representation as well as in the material thing world. Toys are copies in little of things that circulate among adults. The processes involved in play-acting and playing and make-believe and role-playing have long been recognized as vital to the mental and emotional development of children. This, for example, is Tim, the family doll of the 11 Dodgson children, photographed by the eldest when he was still a child, before he became Lewis Carroll. As such, it becomes, for those among us who have been brought up with Alice, a kind of totem, too. I was very struck when I discovered recently that the word thing comes from Old Norse, meaning meeting. The psychologist Charles Fernyhoe glosses this. It's where our minds go to make friends, to meet people. He offers this surprising but inspired definition in his book, The Baby in the Mirror, a study of his daughter aged naught to three, as she begins to interact with the objects in her world. When children play Let's Pretend, they sometimes turn themselves into things. Walter Benjamin remembered that he loved to imitate in me, the compulsion, he wrote, acted through words, not those that made me similar to models of good breeding, but those that made me similar to dwelling places, to furniture, to clothes. But a comfort blanket, the familiar smelly old rag that becomes a toddler's necessary companion, even as it becomes ever grimier and more tattered, the one-eyed, limp-limbed and battered teddy bear, the curious doll, these adopted things where the, child minds go, where the child's mind goes to make friends, were categorized as transitional objects by the British psychologist D.W. Winnicott. For their child possessors, they are more than toys, they are talismans. The, the object exercises a shaping power over its subjects. The child and object grow together. Forms of speech, from nonsense to babble, to deliberate formulae and invocations, play in turn the most crucial part in this development. In magic, words become attached to things as they do in play. And when the speaker utters the right word, the thing will come to life. Open sesame, hey presto, abracadabra, or above all, hoc est corpus, the formula a Catholic priest pronounces, which miraculously transubstantiates the host into the body of Christ. Hocus pocus derives from these words of power. Playing touches such rituals at one end of the spectrum, and entertainment and performance at the other. Words in play can enjoy elective affinities with their reference, but the ambiguity about the voice of the toy, of the doll, or other thing, who is speaking, haunts the psychology of play, and through play, the theory of language's relation to the world, the impact of imagination and creativity itself, 
Is the state of animation which the power of make-believe can conjure sufficient to produce action and make something happen? This question obviously invites a quick dismissal. But when it comes to art and art's own ways of make-believe, the idea becomes far harder to reject. The poet and critic Susan Stewart develops this idea when she writes, Once the toy becomes animated, it initiates another world, the world of the daydream. The beginning of narrative time here is not an extension of the time of everyday life. It is the beginning of an entirely new temporal world. So to return to Benjamin, can that returning glance really draw us after its dream? Talismans can help us answer this question. Totem and taboo, fetish and amulet and charm, concepts for things borrowed heavily from non-Western cultures, have proved rich ground for thought about a secular sacred. Talismans form another class of efficient and hallowed thing. And they are not personal, but impersonal, a type of thing to which aura also clings without connection to a specific beloved body or a particular sorcerer. Talismans have affinities with amulets. They also acquire their powers from imagined outside forces, holy or diabolical, sometimes textual, sometimes representational and pictorial. If the fetish was imported from the imperial encounter in order to grasp shifting sexualities and economies in modern regimes, financial and erotic, perhaps the term talisman entering European culture from the Middle East can open the meanings accruing to things as they circulate and exercise unexplained power in this new cybernetic century. The word talisman first comes into English from French in 1638, where it adapts a Greek word borrowed into Arabic, tilsam talisma. In numerous languages all over the world, the term talisman remains linked to the concept of telos or goal, and it consequently enfolds the idea that something has been completed, often a transaction, a pact fulfilled. A talisma could mean a payment as well as a religious rite. It passes from practical acts of exchange into the realm of the sacred, where imagination is efficacious and changes reality. The concept of pharmacon, or potion, also enfolds a magic talisman, a nostrum that casts a spell on the mind. Words are inscribed on talismans, which give each one its meaning and define its particular function. For example, in the case of a payment in a letter of credit carrying a seal, or a banknote, its value. By extension, talisman came to mean an object endowed with magic virtue. Looked at one way, money used to complete a payment possesses efficient power in this manner. A talisman is an instrument of innate and virtual efficacy, not a tool like a spoon or a knife, but any kind of thing that can perform a deed without being physically or technically fashioned for that practical purpose. It is a magic thing related to amulets, wands, and a range of devices that are believed to have powers and operating by sympathy sometimes, and operate by sympathy, sometimes mimetically, sometimes not. A talisman's meaning radiates through the inscriptions it bears, as you see in Rembrandt's engraving called the talisman, which shows the Magus Faust stunned by the apparition of a luminous kinetic form of power in his study. Talismans in the nights also control genies and make an appearance as wonders of artificial contrivance created usually by magicians. The word itself enters colloquial European languages principally by means of the translations of Arabian night stories and related oriental tales in which talismans feature vividly, indeed luridly. Their active and baneful force irradiates the atmosphere of the most outlandish and impressive of the plots. For example, in the tale of Abu Muhammad the Lazy, the wastrel hero, an ordinary man, the son of an attendant at the public baths, tells the caliph Harun al-Rashid how he acquired a mangy ape and befriended it. And when he treated it well, it turned out to be a potent money-making jinn, a marid of the genie, who brings him measureless luxuries and the kind of superfluity of gold, jewels, fine fabrics, perfumes, and tableware that only the thousand and one knights can lay on. The jinn also commands his owner to marry and then recover from his bride's house an intricate magic object, 
under a stone floor beneath a flagstone set with an iron ring. He will find a chest of iron, at the corners of which are four talismanic flags. In the midst is a basin filled with money, eleven serpents, a white cock, a knife. Abu Muhammad is to perform a complicated ritual sacrifice of these things. When he obeys, his young bride leaps up and cries out in despair, for he has undone the talismans her father had carefully contrived to protect her, and she knows that she's now fallen into the clutches of the ape who has been plotting for, plotting for six years to abduct her to the city of Brass. In itself a land of dead things, the city of Brass lays all its inhabitants under a spell, secured by a talisman of a vulture standing on a pillar, which itself has been created by the ape's dark arts. The hero flies there on the back of a djinn and eventually rescues his love, captures the ape and imprisons him in a bottle of brass, so that when some hapless character mistakenly opens it, the cycle of storytelling can begin again. Talismans in the nights also lead back to the enchantment of everyday life and to the flying carpet. The story of Aladdin Abu Shamat, Aladdin with the beauty spots, this is the original Aladdin, the older one than the one we know, is one of the most extravagant of all the nights in its wayward plot and peculiar, unexplained emotional reversals. In this tale, a gigantic, sparkling, jeweled talisman becomes the engine of the spectacular denouement. A red and shining stone, it first appears miraculously among the stock in the shop in the bazaar in Alexandria, where, after many vicissitudes, Aladdin the hero has fetched up. Its six facets bear secret signs, which looked like ants and other insects. Aladdin Abu Shamat agrees to sell it to a ship's captain for a vast sum, only to find that the purchaser, purchaser is a dastardly Christian pirate who abducts him, transports him to Genoa, puts him up for sale in a slave market where he is bought by an old woman and told to clean and keep a church. There he meets a sorceress who is a princess, a Muslim in disguise. It turns out that with her magic arts, she has contrived the whole of Abu Shamat's recent troubles, his capture, his slavery, etc., in order to bring him into her power and marry him. You wish to return at once to Alexandria, asked Princess Mariam when the ceremony of wedding was over. As Allah lives, I do, he answered. Therefore, she took the carnelian talisman and turned towards the sky one of its faces on which a bed was engraved. She rubbed this representation with her thumb, saying, In the name of Suleiman, O carnelian, I order you to bring me a traveling bed. Hardly had the words been spoken when there appeared before them a traveling bed, all complete with coverlet and cushions. They mounted upon it and lay down at their ease, while the princess turned toward another face of her carnelian, one on which was engraved the figure of a bird, saying, Carnelian, O carnelian, I conjure you in the name of Suleiman to take us safe to Alexandria by the direct way. At once the bed rose in the air without any jolting, and going out by the great window in the dome, began to sail through the air more quickly than a bird, and with an easy and riding motion, in less time than it takes to piss, it came to earth in Alexandria. The passage epitomizes the storytelling methods of the Thousand and One Nights, the rapid, matter-of-fact, efficacious magic, the mingling of ordinary furniture and enchanted horizons, and the throwaway, rude, joyful earthiness after a rapturous vision of soaring in less time than it takes to piss. The flying bed comes from Poe's Mather's translation into English after the fin de siècle French symbolist version. And in the hands of later translators, this flying bed becomes a flying sofa. A flying carpet, as such, makes its first appearance in the tale of Prince Ahmed and the fairy Peri Banu where Hussein, one of the two older brothers of the hero, acquires it on his journeys through the world. It looks like nothing but an ordinary piece of tapestry with which you cover your sofa. But it flies, and at speed, carrying its passengers wherever they wish in a trice. This temporal dimension to the wonder marks a crucial element in the magic of things today. And this is the poster which um, so, so wonderfully the Humanity Center designer discovered, because you actually see here um, the, um, it's, that it's, it's not irrelevant that the magic thing the eldest brother collects and brings back is an ivory perspective glass, that's this. 
um, an optical instrument which allows the user to see whatever he wishes, wh wherever it is happening in the world at the time. Through it, Prince Ali sees that the beautiful Princess Nurinohar is sickening unto death, and the three brothers immediately mount the flying carpet and ride to her rescue, using the costly apple with healing powers of smell that the youngest brother, Prince Ahmed, has required on his travels. As the glass extends sight into fantasy, the carpet extends sensation. Both have the magic property of undoing the bonds of ordinary space and time. In this, they mimic the effects of reading itself. Those daydreaming readers lying about on sofas in Orientalist imagery are picturing the imaginary voyages brought into being by the printed page. The Disney Aladdin, where the magic carpet has a speaking role as an old close friend of the genie, was brought wittily to life with animated and gesticulating corner tassels for hands and feet. He then embarked the lovers, Aladdin and Jasmine, on an ecstatic flight through space to the celestial strains of the hit song, A Whole New World, as I'm sure you know, in a sequence that captures the original metonymic promise of the flying furniture of the nights, knowledge, eroticism, a future time of continuing bliss, trouble-free time travel. A sofa is a daybed, a low-lying couch for reclining and abandoning oneself, to smoking, to daydreaming, to reading romances. Scattered with brocade throws, satin cushions, and figured tapestries, it became an ultimate emblem of Oriental hedonism, the richest symbol of Middle Eastern culture, luxury, and sophistication. Sofa is not the only word borrowed from Arabic culture by ours, more given to straight-backed chairs and dark oat settles and hard benches. Ottoman itself comes to mean a soft, poof-like cushion for sitting or lying on, while the word divan also means a kind of daybed or couch, all Arabic words. Daybeds turn up with almost comical insistence in scenes of bliss in Orientalist fictions, produced by foreign and local artists alike, for the thriving market in such romances, as in the Swiss painter's sumptuous studies, Swiss painter Lyotard's sumptuous studies of Turkish life. But the genre is not confined to Western Orientalist painters. This young man, mind voyaging with a book on his sofa, was painted by the founder of Istanbul's Museum of Archaeology, who was himself the son of a grand vizier, Osman Bey Hamdi. It's called A Young Man Studying. Such soft and inviting furnishings were sometimes covered by rugs and carpets to deepen their comfort and colorfulness. By extrapolation, they formed the flying carpet of oriental fantasy, that fabulous vehicle of transport at a literal level. And as hinted, and as hinted in the conclusion of Aladdin Abu al-Shamat, with plenty of metaphorical resonances, languorous, pleasurable, dreamy. Such sybaritic mores excited Western admiration, and the furnishings were much copied, as were the fashions. The traveler Mary Wortley Montague, praising in particular the loose dresses of Turkish women, the absence of constricting foundation garments, stays, and corsets. Soon after the appearance of the Arabian Nights in translation in 1704 in France, and very soon after that in England, European authors grasped the chance to play with the animated population of things in the nights. The book excited a widespread craze for fabulism, for fantastic adventures, imaginary and preposterous stories. And while many of the writers who adopted its storytelling techniques parodied and exaggerated them in apparent frivolity, they also seized the chance for exuberant play in order to envision different regimes of authority emancipated erotics, and scientific leaps of imagination. The Thousand and One Nights treated the inexplicable as entirely ordinary and offered a way of picture painting alternative realities as if they had already happened and needed no comment. The philosopher Denis Diderot produced in 1748 one of his earliest works, Les Bijoux Indiscrets, or The Indiscreet Jewels, a key work of liberty and utopianism the novel tells the story of 30 women's erotic lives by means of a magic jewel which, when rubbed, opens the lips of their pudenda and allows them to speak of their misfortunes or fortunes. This is a pioneering work of philosophical comic fiction in the tradition that Voltaire would perfect. In the course of the 18th century, the next generation of storytellers activate every kind of domestic thing or paraphernalia in a kind of gorgeous animated painting come into being. 
Furniture, carpets, fob watches, toys, and other impedimenta give their first-hand accounts, an account from the driver's seat to the horse's mouth, which no human bystander could match or even come close to. Things are privy to secrets in this comic mode, sofas included. In Claude Crébillon's novel, Le Sofa, ou Conte Moral, The Sofa, A Moral Tale, published in 1779, the sofa's angle of view is scandalous, as you can imagine. This novel truly announces the confessions of the psychoanalytic couch. The plot, such as it is, framed in, is framed in jocular homage to the knights, when the sultan's grandson hankers to find someone with the skill of his grandmother, Scheherazade, and his sultana can't satisfy him. Shah Bahan demands to be told stories to be told to lift his terminal ennui. He cries out, I want unusual happenings, fairies, talismans, but don't you make a mistake about this. It is the only truth there is. The sofa has begun life as a young rake, but is punished for his escapades by his change of shape, and he will only be allowed to return to human form when two pure-hearted young lovers have made love sincerely while sitting on him. <laughs> Takes a while. <laughs> Writers scribble the misadventures of trinkets, toys, and tools, a peg top, a corkscrew, a whipping top, and even a hackney coach. Perhaps you never thought, writes Mary Jane Kingley, who in 1780 published the, an English pioneer of the genre, The Adventures of a Pincushion, that such things as are inanimate could be sensible of anything which happens, as they can neither hear, see, or understand. The popular device accords things what Jonathan Lamb has called in a wonderful essay, The Crying of Lost Things, autonomous glamour. They are no longer meaningful by association alone, but magically empowered and efficacious under their own volition. Entering Western literature as characters, they embody an intuition about the industrial and post-industrial worlds, where the way things acquire value will be irreversibly changed by machine replication and digital reproduction. The word talisman, as I mentioned earlier, included a vestigial concept of transaction and exchange as tokens of value magically transferred money from you to me, or vice versa. And significantly, these 18th century autobiographies of things include several first-person yarns told by types of money. As early as 1709, that is only the year after the first English translation of the Arabian Nights entertainments, Charles Gilden published anonymously The Golden Spy, or the first Knights entertainment, about the power and progress of gold. Its hero is a coin which first fell to earth in the golden shire which ravished Danae. Its great antiquity, the golden, in its great antiquity, the golden coin resembles the jinns who also emanate from a remote and ancient past and have not changed form or nature during the millennia they've spent incarcerated in jars and lamps and other things. The popular narrative device grows out of a new materialism. It is rooted in the newly expanding world traffic and in enlightenment rationality. This appears to be a contradiction, but it also remains consistent with developments in public entertainments, such as the Phantasmagoria shows, which ratcheted up the spookiness while at the same time claiming to be showing it up for what it was, nothing but an illusion. The intrinsic quality of this new eerie materialism arises from its relationship to time, to the eternal youth of a past that it captures, be it Marilyn Monroe on the screen as she was in her salad days, or the glister of gold, and turns this recollection of the past into an abiding present tense, which encloses and can enclose a prophecy of the future. This prophetic strain in modern animism connects the storytelling of the knights more tightly to that second self that computers represent in Turkle's phrase. With the delight writers take in imagining human flight, we can return to the idea that unlike relics or mementos, toys and talismans speak of the future, not the past. The animist imagination of the knights does not only reproduce the brisk and eloquent traffic in goods across east-west boundaries in the 18th and 19th centuries, it also meshes with the scientific imagination in significant ways. It draws us into the dreams the things dreamed, a realm of virtual reality. Vernacular dreams of flying, using domestic contrivances and artifacts, fill the literature of imaginary voyages subsequent to the first publication of the knights and were influenced by them. Playing in this fashion, improbable, comic, delightful, madcap tales elaborate on the minutiae of flying vehicles. 
and drive towards the actual invention of the first airborne machines, imagination preceding act. In Cyrano de Bergerac's voyage to the moon, the pioneer aviator is powered by dew evaporating in the heat of the sun from a belt of flasks around his waist. The, um, yeah. the illustrator of the 1708 edition preferred to picture these homely vessels in the style of the knights, like the bottles in which gins lurk, rather than the eggshells improbably offered by the original text of 1650. However, fantasies of individual human flight reach a pinnacle of invention in a book that combines wonder and fairy tale storytelling with travel reportage. The life and adventures of Peter Wilkins, a man of Cornwall in 1750, eventually became an international success, like Swift's classic, Gulliver's Tales. It was published as a true report from a world traveler and given the new title, The Flying Indians. And it leads directly to the science fiction of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and even to the flying children of Barry's Peter Pan. Peter Wilkins describes in, substantial, in circumstantial historical detail how he was shipwrecked near the South Pole. The only survivor, he manages Robin Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe style until one day he hears a crash and finds a woman tangled up in a tree and in a swoon. He lifts her up and she felt to my touch in the oddest manner imaginable. For while in one respect it was as though she had been cased up in whalebone, it was at the same time as soft and warm as if she had been naked. Little did I think then that she could fly. After this mysterious and romantic start, Peter Wilkins comes to care for her and gradually discovers that she is in fact winged. This is useful. He dispatches her to the wreck to fetch back supplies. But he also becomes attached to her, learns her language, and eventually they marry and he settles down in pastoral colonial idyllic isolation with Yuaki. The author, an otherwise unknown lawyer called Robert Pultock, works out very deliberately how a flesh and blood woman would be able to fly. In a tender scene of lovemaking, he discovers that Yuaki is tightly encased in a structure called a grondi, made of a silky elastic material which sheathes, them, sheathes her like the wings of a moth and equally can suddenly unfurl. The text is ambiguous about the organic character of this carapace, but for the reader, it is more of an ingenious artifact a cross between a fan, a parasol, a spinnaker, and a full body corset or body stocking. Yuwaki and her kind are called Gauris, after the Indian name of one of the goddesses. She is a hybrid creature between woman and machine, a cyborg avant la lettre, a magnificent woman, but still a kind of toy with a voice, and a voice that is very sweet and musical, we are told. Pultock includes a glossary of her language. The males of the species are equipped differently to fly with an extra tail fin between their legs, like a bird's tail. When Wilkins joins her people to help them in their battle against a perennial enemy, he also takes the opportunity to translate the Bible for them. These fine illustrations come from the French edition of 1738. Imitation did not arouse so much criticism then as it does today, and the inspired variations on Peter Wilkins's adventures directly shape the brilliant chronicle of more flying lovers by the libertine and pamphleteer Rétif de la Bretonne in a four-volume imaginary travel novel, The Discovery of the Southern Land by a Flying Man or the French Daedalus. As with, this is 1781. As with the Flying Indians, the volumes include the most delectable engravings, seductively earnest, chivalrous fantasies about the hero Valentin and his beloved Christine as they take off for the Pacific, encased in a surrealist contraption, a harnessed and body stocking confected from an umbrella attached to the top of their heads by a strap fastened under the chin and a resplendent ribbed sail parachute which covers their entire body length and opens in flight. The oriental vision of flying vehicles, enchanted kitchenware and soft furnishings has here been transposed under the influence of heroic enlightenment individualism to the bodies of the flyers who become artifacts themselves, artificial by nature, as the composer Maurice Ravel acutely remarked later when reproached with bringing toys to life in his opera The Child and the Spells. 
It is striking that these Western dreams of flight in the 18th century extrapolate from the techniques of corsetry and umbrella making to solve the practical problems, while the Oriental versions where women's bodies were not constricted select instead the skills of weavers and upholsterers. The ecstatic and erotic imagination of humans soaring before balloons and hang gliders draws on material culture and characteristic artifacts, sofas and carpets in the East, corsets and umbrellas and waterproofing in the West, and after the coming of the balloon, pneumatic uplift. The theater, the musical, and the circus became a playground for grown-ups during the rise of public urban entertainments. Magic tricks, oriental extravagandas, extravaganzas, and dreams of flying filled the stage. The flying Indians became great favorites in the popular press. Now, this is a Victorian sort of yellow penny dreadful showing Peter Wilkins with his flying machine. And this is a theater poster for the flying Indians. Responding to a profound affinity between the mobility and dexterity of space-time in stories in the Arabian Nights, the earliest filmmakers turned to the book for material, and the magic carpet becomes a metaphor for the medium of cinema itself. Georges Méliès made several trick films inspired by oriental enchantments at the very beginning of the medium, and also flies to the moon in a famous and hilarious train. The Thief of Baghdad, made by Douglas Fairbanks in 1924, and at the time the most expensive film yet made, initiated many special effects which have since become stock-in-trade fantasy movie devices, including vanishing and flying. Prince Ahmed, in Lottie Reiniger's exquisite film of 1926, the first full-length animated feature, soars into a starry sky on a flying toy horse. Today, hardly a film goes by without a battle on Quidditch brooms or with flying daggers. In the recent Golden Compass, the white witch Serafina Pekala planes ecstatically over the universe. Here, the cinema itself has become the vehicle of her wingless, free-floating flight. Box within box, the physical screen of the cinema unfolds a microcosmic vision of the world unfurling beneath her for our delight as we take a ride on the movie, the moving picture, the flying carpet. No contrivance is needed now, either for Serafina or for us, because the vehicle has become film itself, the ultimate fantasy machine that is neither altogether a thing nor a person, but a thing that contains people inside it in an eternal rolling present. Reviewing last week Salman Rushdie's recent novel, The Enchantress of Florence, Ursula Le Guin, herself a great writer, summarized luminously the argument I'm putting here when she wrote, it's clear that Charles Darwin lived in as wondrous a world, as full of discoveries, amazements, and profound mysteries as that of any fantasist. She continued, science and literary fantasy would seem to be intellectually compatible, yet both describe the world. The imagination functions actively in both modes, seeking meaning, and wins intellectual consent through strict attention to detail and coherence of thought, whether one is describing a beetle or an enchantress. Animist beliefs, usually dismissed as regressive, childish, and primitive, have, on the contrary, activated the scientific imagination and seeded the inventions of our contemporary digitized world with its new phantasmagoric and disembodied realities of presence in absence, algorithmic vitality, and action at a distance. The secret life of things was primarily explored to inspire delight in the tales of the Thousand and One Nights. But the vision of the stories struck deeper resonances and inspired fervent imitation and invention. The fantastic imagination does not oppose reason, but works with it, as the great fabulist Georges-Louis Borges held. Playing with reasoned imagination, Borges's phrase, can penetrate the potential of phenomena in surprising and illuminating ways. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.